Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and today I'm joined by good supporter of the podcast, former top 10 player Tim Mayotte makes his comeback. And it's a topic that I had in mind when me and Tim spoke a couple of times earlier. Uh, the health of the U.S. men's tennis has, I don't know if it's come full circle from my vantage point, but that's why we have Tim here uh, to explore this further. Tim, welcome back to the show. How you been? Uh, great, great. Thanks so much for having me back. And uh, as you pointed to, it's exciting that the U.S. men finally seem to be on track now. Yes, yeah, crazy number. I think they're 15 in the top 100. And if you also include Christopher Eubanks, who's one of four, just outside the top 100, and then they're 10 in the top 50. I don't even know when this kind of uh, residency was occupied by American men's player in the in the top rankings. Maybe we have to go back in the Sampras Agassi, Martin Chang courier days, but still 15 is a huge number. Well, what I think what needs to be seen or clarified in that is that uh, there was uh, about four years ago, 15 in the top 100. But the big difference, at least from the, what the ranking showing, is that you've got a big chunk up front. Uh, I think you've got, is it two in the top 10? How many in the top 20 now? Maybe four in the top 20. Yeah, four in the top 20. and uh, Yeah. So and then, for a uh, while, it was really just uh, Isner. And uh, then you had a bunch of guys, you know, who were strong, solid players but not at this, uh, this level where you're seeing, uh, you know, bunches competing and competing late in the tournament in the slams, which is uh, obviously the most important sign. Because regardless of what you see in two out of three set matches and even in uh, 1,000s to, to have that uh, in, you know, deep in the three, three Americans and semifinals in the last three slams in a row is uh, is a much more encouraging sign than we've seen in a long time. Absolutely. And then, uh, you know, technique and fundamentals, that's something you're huge on. And that's what those two earlier episodes focused on. So if this could be in continuation for an old listener and the new listener can chime in. So I want to start with Francis Tiafo. And we talked a lot about uh, some of the technical adjustments or uh, maybe a limitation that you saw, but uh, his U.S. Open run. So you think something changed there fundamentally? Is the ceiling higher than before? What, is, what has happened there? It's funny because I looked, uh, I'm writing about his game as we speak, and so I've been looking very closely at what's been happening in his game over since, since I looked at the Easter Bowl success he had as a junior all the way up to currently. And it's it's pretty complicated to talk about but I mean basically he used to on the forehand side which has always been his big weakness uh, he used to pull his racket and his arm much further out to the side way out to the right as he starts into his unit turn and that has uh, diminished quite a bit so I think what's important there is the swing path is a lot cleaner uh, and so he is uh, definitely fixed that I wouldn't say fixed because I still don't think it's a great forehand, um, but it's a it's a dang good one, and as we know, it's a super powerful one. 
whether he can still count on it in big moments, you know, remains to be seen. We'll uh, we'll we'll see as things progress. I mean, yeah, repeatability is the key at at this level, and you know more than you know us here on on the on the couch side of things. So uh, the game being so homogenized, everybody has these world class movement, world class ground strokes. So you, I think you raise a great point. Like, uh, can it can it hold uh, in in key moments? And uh, the other part I want to ask you is, you said maybe slight tinkering at this level. How how long does that go? If uh, there's a slight, because he's been working with Wayne Ferrer now close to two years, so uh, of course you can't restructure the stroke overnight. And we've seen a guy like Ernest Gulbis, whose forehand has been restructured many times, and he dropped out of the top hundred because the forehand was never the same. So with TFO, uh, if you look at you know his run at the U.S. Open. Uh, for, for someone like me, you know, where the naked eye doesn't really catch all that's happened. You want to elaborate, like, you know, why it it will be under so much duress. Like, uh, if he has to move further, he's like already 14. You know, larger question, what is the ceiling with this forehand right now? No, it's impossible to tell. I mean, you know, you, you still see some... More on the women's side, you see uh, some players doing quite well with, with subpar technique but um you know this is the way i would review i say if there's any level of doubt in a player's mind as they enter the biggest situations uh, not necessarily about whether they're going to win or not because everyone has pressure if there's any level of doubt about their technical uh efficiency at that level then they're going to suffer there's no question in my mind it's uh and what's interesting now is these guys all through you know they'll say three or four in the top 15 but tfo in particular you know it's one thing to get there it's another thing to uh continue rising up or not uh you know not sinking down so uh he's kind of entering a what i would call a second stage which is you know you reach close to the top 10 and then can you maintain it and that's where we'll see where his game is going. Uh, I still don't love the forehand. I still don't like the way it, to me, it breaks down when, uh, particularly when he has to come forward and uh, slightly to his right. Uh, historically, as I look back, that was the shot that always he struggled with and whether he can do that, improve that now is, uh, is another question. What is notable here is, and this I would say for all the American guys is that they are making technical tweaks as they progress in their career. So if we look at all the best, well, the the top three, they all improved dramatically technically while they were on the tour. And if we look at the past Americans over the last 15, 18 years, in my mind, very few of them had any technical progress so let's talk about uh, so Federer obviously learned to take a, a a much better angle to his backhand take it on the rise so Nadal wasn't able to uh to you know really hold him at bay by pushing him way back so that's obviously a footwork pattern but it incorporates a swing Nadal's serve but particularly his volleys improved dramatically uh Djokovic's uh, serve improved dramatically so those guys continued to improve. We talked about Ivan Lendl. He got better through his whole career. 
So the great thing is if the U.S. men, if their coaches are help pushing them to become you know, better throughout their career, that's key. Not easy to do because uh, any change can get into a player's head and make things go uh, down. You know, I think we're seeing on the women's side again, like with Coco Goff, she just doesn't trust the forehand or the serve at 100%. And she's going to have to find a way to improve those things and not get down from the, uh, you know, not get depressed by not getting the results she wanted. I think that's why she was crying. So is age an impediment? Like if you, it's funny you brought in Coco Goff. So uh, she definitely has a lot of age on her side. So you think the older you get, the harder it is to implement these uh, adjustments regarding the technique or, this depends totally, totally on the person. You can't, you can't say. It's all the attitude that a player has. Now she suffers from, or I would imagine again, this is all what what I see. She suffers from just the enormous um, pressure that's been put on her from a youngest age, and not having that breakthrough performance. So. I think it's, uh, I imagine it's getting to her, what are we into, you know, probably into year two and a half or three with her. And uh, she's going to, and everyone's talking about it. And, you know, what's going on with Coco? And is she going to fulfill the Serena and Venus's, you know, legacy and all this literally BS that, um, that a player has to, I'm not saying it's, it's legitimate discussions, but it becomes BS in your head because you can't focus on what you need to focus on. Interesting. So, so age is hard. It's hard to tell, but what, again, when, you know, we talk about how great the big three are, the, the, one of the amazing things about them is that they continue to improve even as they were at the top of the game. Sure. So I think that brings me to the next point, which uh, has been an Achilles heel of the American men in the Roddick generation and be, you know, and up to not this point, but pretty recently like Stevie Johnson and the backhand, we talked about that, right? Now with TFO, Paul, Fritz, and if you want to include Corda, all these guys seem to have great backhands. So is, is that a shift, you know, in the American men's conversation that, uh, that stands out? It's a that, huge, it's a huge shift. And I think you have to, um, applaud them and their coaches for the remarkable turnaround because as we talked about i mean ryan harrison steve johnson andy roddick uh john isner sam query it it just was astonishing and i think part of that came out and this is you know why i've had so many odds with the usta but when I had started working at the USTA in 2009, there was this discussion going on where a player needed two strengths, two weapons to make it on the tour, which was pretty much the Roddick model. You had a big serve and a big forehand. And uh, I, th- this was part of the disagreements I had with some of the coach, the high-level coaches, Higueras and Patrick McEnroe. There. Just, it was clear that that wasn't enough, but that discussion two weapons being enough just was so limiting. And what we've seen now is that the coaches 
on their own have, you know, woken up or realized or however you want to talk about it, have become um, aware that you've got to be great off both sides. Uh, the other one to talk about, obviously, is Jack Sock, who I think now is probably playing pickleball. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, to me, and I, I hate to be harsh, but it, I think it's been a good thing that the USTA has downgraded its own role in player development because it was just uh, not going anywhere. Um, they're spending less money and the players are getting much better faster. So it talks about the, to me, the depth of the coaching outside of, you know, a central organization, people who are just watching uh, their own individual players. So from, from what I remember last time, why this conversation was so fascinating, fascinating at, at my level and the listeners level, uh, you also weighed heavily on the footwork and the movement. So, and you did explain like how leaning into your backhand compared to like, you know, with the Djokovic, Safin or an Albandian, how the American men didn't have that kind of backhand. So again, that, is that something that happened overnight because Fritz and TFO are still playing? So, and then Koda is definitely a new newbie on the block and and Paul wasn't in that conversation. So if you want to just give it, uh, you know, get, take a deeper dive for a technical listener here and elaborate the connection again and why you see improvements in this particular shot with the four men that we're talking about. Well, the, the, there's so many variations, but I mean, in the most basic sense, uh, and I saw Jack Brody, who's a great, uh, great uh, technical analyst talk about this as well. So on the backhand side, there were a couple issues. The, the most basic one was that Roddick, Harrison, and uh, Stevie Johnson and Isner, their unit turn was really shockingly in, inefficient. And particularly for three of them, that means that when they took the racket back, their hands and arms were extraordinarily tight. So it was pretty easy to see with Roddick, and that's why uh, you know his backhand looked awkward, and it, it at the highest level was awkward because there was so much rigidity in the turn that he didn't have the arm flexibility to bring the racket way back behind the body. Now, if you watch the space that, let's say, Djokovic or Nalbandian generates between their elbows and their torso, on Djokovic's backhand versus uh, versus those players, then uh, you can see why their backhands were so poor, but simply because the swing path was so much shorter given how rigid their arms and hands were when they made the turn. Uh, and it, it is shocking to me that those things couldn't be worked on. Now, then you start to get in other more complicated areas, say with Jack Sock and uh, Stevie Johnson. And I don't mean to ramble on this because it's, it's tough to follow, but if those guys, they pulled their hands away from themselves, away from their torso too far when they went to hit a uh, topspin backhand. And that actually impacted the swing path, but it also had an imbalancing move on their, on their, um, movement to that side. So, I mean, if you picture like somebody's holding a, a weighted object away from your their core, they're going to lose balance 
and this is minimal. I mean, we're talking tiny, tiny, tiny bits of needing to make adjustments. Now, Johnson just opted to go for the um, the slice because his backhand was so bad. And then uh, Sock just, you know, he he would either run around. <laughs> he'd leave the zip code to hit a forehand. <laughs> Where would Ginepri fit into this? Was he of the same? I didn't follow Ginepri's game closely enough. I think he was relatively solid. You know, I, again, I'm not I'm not advocating that people not run around their backhands. I think that's critical part of all of having a great quote unquote modern game. But um, the if you look at the depth, the penetration of the ground strokes of all the players up against the Americans of that generation, I think it's pretty remarkable that, uh, you know, they, they, they were so bad for so long. It really, it was just astonishing. So there, there's slight variations in each of their backhands that made them uh, struggle. And, uh, but they were obvious, at least to me, and I'm sure to some other people. Now, whether they didn't, their coach didn't want them to work on it, or they just didn't even try, um, hard to tell. I mean, I talked to Patrick McEnroe once about helping or at least trying to make some suggestions to Roddick's, you know, backhand. And he said, you know, Andy's just not interested. Um, and obviously the player has to buy in, but, um, it was pretty, you know, pretty shocking across the road that, that this was obvious. And this gets into this, the next, another big subject, which is the lengths of the strokes themselves. So, and year the longer the swing assu- assuming it's technically efficient the better because you're going to generate more racket head speed and right, so that, that, sorry go ahead right. so and when you see all these backhands the swing path because the hands are so rigid was was shorter we're talking about a difference of let's say two inches but that's that's enough to make it bad um and so, or not bad, but not effective enough at the highest levels. And these guys have done a nice job at lengthening their swing paths, all of them. Now they're, now they're really starting to spread out. So even if you look at, let's say, Roddick's forehand or Ryan Harrison's forehand, I mean, it just wasn't as long and fluid as the Europeans. And uh, that's just changed. You know, we see with Paul and Corda and, and uh um, all these guys at the swing pass are much longer now than they used to be. And that's just very helpful. It's just huge. Now they're generating more racket speed off of both sides. If they're doing it technically, they're, you know, properly or with the right movement, then they're on balance. So the recovery is better. That improves their, their mental state because now they feel that there's a flow and a rhythm in their games. And it's just, uh, you know, it's great to watch. All right, so the erotic part is, is, I think, is gold here. I think let's take a deeper dive. I knew you'll bring something new to this, so that wasn't on the agenda. But I think good arrogance is needed. Like, it's such a, you know, man-to-man sport, and you need to believe in your strengths. So I don't blame him from distance when if he was being told that you need to tinker so much and he wasn't interested because the the one-two punch forehand uh, serve plus got him to world number one. But, of course, then Federer, Nadal, and then Djokovic and Murray it clearly showed him like the limitation because these guys were complete, they moved better and they really, their weaknesses weren't as 
exponential. Some of, some would argue they didn't have any weaknesses. So I think uh, you you've been a former top player yourself. So how hard it is to and okay, let me rephrase this. How do you uh, bring this point across? Uh, what Patrick McEnroe said, Roderick is not interested. So of course he became interested or realized after a decade uh, at the top where he came in second against these four guys. So how hard, how hard, how difficult is it to sell this point to an established champion? And we can definitely have a different conversation to Stevie Johnson again. No shame. He also reached uh, a pretty decent level in rankings. So again, this becomes, uh, doesn't matter who's, who this point is coming from, or it's again, different to each individual. Uh, talk about this because you're a former player yourself. How did you embrace uh, feedback? It, just, it, just dep- it depends on the person, number one, and then it depends on their history. So if uh, I'm sure Roddick heard for years, he's got to improve his backhand. And the he may have taken a few, you know, strides or attempts to really dramatically improve it um and they didn't go as well as he had hoped and then at a certain point you lose faith and you say okay i gotta stick with my game um then if the player comes to not trust the coach or feel too insecure about making those adjustments then they're going to struggle and they're probably going to rule out that anything is going to have an impact. Now, what is, again, astonishing about the top three is they were able to change and grow and uh, continue to improve and not really at any point face, uh, face difficulty in their progress at the top. So amazingly, it's, it's just astonishing how well they did it. I think Lendl comes to mind. Sampras. Obviously, his backhand improved dramatically as this game went on, you know, as as the tour went on, his time on the tour. So, um, but I can't stress enough, you know, we talk about players being mentally strong and tough and, but, you know, that comes from a belief that they can do something with the ball in the biggest moments. And it's not the only thing that's needed, but technical movement proficiency is the cornerstone of that so if you have that plus an amazing attitude then you can perform under the biggest you know in the biggest circumstances if you don't you know there's always something going on in your head that's not quite as good and when great players go out on the court and they both have tremendous confidence in their ability to perform because based built on technical and movement proficiency, then, you know, that's when you see things taken to the next level. That's when it's, uh, um, you know, so exciting to watch. And that's when the, you know, the tennis really takes off. Um, you know, and I just, it's interesting with Djokovic, because I just, you just don't see anybody still close to his level. I mean, it's, 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 you know, I turn on, I watch a match, Guys are, wow, those guys are so good. You know, 10 in the world, 12 in the world. I mean, then you watch Djokovic. It's just like, just, uh, you're just seeing, you know, you're seeing the dominance of the big three again. Uh, it's just, it's just a thing to behold. Those guys are on a different plane. Yes, it's just incredible what he's been able to do. I was, we were talking this on a Twitter space. 
that uh, it's such a foregone conclusion. And, you know, you still play a match and you want to give everyone a fair chance. But I think uh, his ability to win the so-called important points close to a decade now, he had few off years in between, was just uh, such a, it's just money in the bank. I mean, you know, he's going to find a way to win. He may play, play, play bad. He may just, you know, sometimes lose rhythm, but you know, he's going to win the points that matter. And that's just, you know, <laughs> that's just such a reality. So again, uh, interesting you bring Novak Djokovic right now. We'll go back to the Fritz and the Kodas in a bit. So there's a lot of new players since we last spoke who made their move. Alcaraz was number one uh, when the U.S. Open. There's Yannick Sinner. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of new. Felix Ogielisim is slowly coming into his own. Uh, he's a he's a legit top ten player. So who who, who has impressed you the most? And uh, you know, if you want to look at the world talent, and then we can go back to the U.S. men uh, between Alcaraz, Sinner, Ogielisim, Holger Runa. There's there's a lot of new names since we last spoke. Well, there's, uh, to me, Alcaraz is, is set apart. There's no, I don't think there's anybody at his level. Um, so we talk about, first of all, the, um, you know, this, the length of the swing path on his shots is just extraordinary. You know, the, his capacity to develop racket head speed do it on balance is fantastic. Number one, he's as quick as anybody on the tour. Uh, comes in and out of situations, uh, meaning in and out of a shot as fast as anybody. Three, his variety is probably better than Djokovic's. Um, in the sense is, I think his execution at net is probably better. Uh, his willingness to hit drop shots or not even willingness, but his ability to execute drop shots, drop volleys is better than Djokovic. So Alcaraz to me clearly is at a different level than anybody else besides Novak. You know, Nadal remains to be seen whether he, uh, you know, can up his game again. Obviously the French is going to be fascinating as we come around to the clay court tennis again. I don't, see anybody else close to those two possibly three uh alexim i don't think has the weapons rude to me looks exceptionally solid and you know let's see how he deals with the pressure of the moment meaning you know obviously getting to the finals of the major city the same thing um rune nori medvedev maybe but i think he's uh to me, the 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 amount of court he has to cover to where he because he plays so far back in the court just is a uh, you know very difficult tall order for somebody to to cover that amount of ground. Um, and again, I don't think I think his groundies are interesting and big and long, but I don't like his balance. He seems off balance more than he should be. Curios. You know, super talented. His technique has improved. His forehand, if you look specifically at his forehand, his elbow positioning as he goes into the unit turn on his forehand is significantly improved. It used to go up much higher and behind him. And then last year he fixed it, and now it's exactly where it should be. Uh, he's gotten lower on his backhand, so that means it's 
penetrating down the line better and he's also recovering faster because of that you know when you get down lower as you come out of a ground choke you recover better he's serving as well as anybody i've long held that for a guy who has not trains the way you need to train to be the very best in the world you're going to be prone to injuries so him getting injured didn't surprise me because I just don't see starting training at 24. Six to eight years of work that usually begins around 16 years old, 17 years old, if not earlier. I mean, a lot of guys start even earlier than that. Fritz, I don't know if he has the wheels. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't put him at the top. Uh, again, I'd go back to... Uh, Corda and Tommy Paul is the biggest possibility of really breaking through to the top. And uh, I think Paul is fantastic mover. To me, he gets a little off balance too often off of his forehand. And I think that's a little bit of a, you know, uh, but he's got as good a hands as anybody in the game, I think, including uh, Alcaraz. So, okay, so, no, I think yeah, you covered a lot of names there. So I want to just... Uh, take a deeper dive here into Stefano Sissipas. Uh, yeah. He has Twitter public divided. Uh, I mean, great talent, you know, guys leaving everything out there. Uh, I believe he's a slam winner. A lot of folks do, but a lot of folks also don't because they don't see him beating Djokovic and Alcaraz. He also has a matchup issue with Holger Runa. So uh, what, what do you see there? I mean, Sissipas is, you know, he's always in the mix, but do you see him as a major winner potentially? And what technicalities I, needs to be addressed because his backhand block return was a big issue. He's come, I think he's become slightly better at that wing of the return of serve. But uh, I think still the top guns, or the top guys still seem to find a way to exploit that. Yeah. Um, so I didn't watch enough at the, at the Australian. And given the time difference, it seems to me that uh, he definitely should be in the conversation. Now, now that we're out of the big three era, let's say, uh, luck of the draw has a much more prominent role in, in this because the astonishing number of uh, times the big three were in the semifinals together just made any path to winning the tournament seemingly you know, almost impossible. I think, what is it, Murray? Only Murray and, uh, and Wawrenka were able to do it. And, um, but now with you just got Novak, I think Sitsifas has to be in the conversation. You're definitely right that the high backhand and particularly the high backhand return is the big weakness for him. And, um, you know, I just didn't see enough of this last tournament to, to, uh, to have an assessment about how, whether he's fixed that or not. Inherently the one hander is just tough. It's a tough way to go because uh, primarily because you're not hitting or it's very difficult to hit open stance uh, when you're deep in the backhand corner with a one-hander as opposed to a two. So pushing back into the court gets, you lose half a step in the recovery, getting the kind of penetration is very difficult. You know, that's why Federer obviously had to start taking the ball earlier. He's got a nice slice. Um, so we shall see. I think to me, it seemed like the big, the, the other, big thing was the um you know relationship with his father which seems you know still complicated 
but uh, you know, ultimately a player has to become their own self and uh, how that's going. I have no comment on, but uh, he has really- multiple Philippusas now, I think as his trainer oh. as well. So I think that's, that might change things, but yeah, his right. dad is pretty, pretty vocal still. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of noise and, uh, but, but obviously he's on a good path if he's, you know, getting to the finals and um, he's definitely part of the conversation. Sure. So let's go back to Fritz and the American men. And you said there's like the mobility or the movement. Uh, there's a big consensus that it's improved. Uh, and you said you still don't see it happening. So uh, even you think if Novak uh, fades out at some point, you, you think Fritz has age on his side to make, make a run? Uh, or you think a lot of things have to go his way for him to be holding a major trophy? But he's 24 now? Yeah. Uh, again, I think he's, all these guys are part of the converse. Not all these guys. Yeah, I would put Sitifas ahead of uh, Fritz. Um, I just don't see them you know, being dominant or I can see a I can see Taylor certainly getting to the finals or winning a slam or two. That's his uh, movement has definitely improved, but is it the best of the best? I mean, it's not, to me, it's not even in the same category as, as Alcaraz, uh, certainly not Djokovic. Um, he, he's a big guy. You think he's moving as good as Medvedev and Zverev? I think, uh, is he moving as well? Yes. And his big advantage is he takes the ball earlier than those guys. You know, the problem with those guys is they tend to lay back so far in the court that they actually have to move better. So it's not only that's the efficiency of the footwork patterns to the contact point. Um, so for instance, if you watch in the old days, Villander or Connors or uh, these guys, they would control the middle of the court so well. Hingis did this exceptionally well. Chris Everett. Whereas they may not seem so fast, but their angle to the ball really improves their both their core positioning and their capability of of hitting uh, you know angles and getting the court open. You know, many people don't recognize this about Nadal, but his movement forward is extraordinary. You know, to not necessarily to go to net, but to to cut off an angle and then open the court through that. And Fritz does that better than those two guys. Medvedev, in particular, is just so far back that uh you know he's constantly running to play catch up to get back into points so i don't uh i just don't see how that can hold up and fritz but, is also pretty comfortable at the net so tim what do you think uh with everyone moving well everybody has this amazing uh baseline game you know with of course you know there's like the best ones in the slightly uh below group but you think uh coming to the net and finishing up points is gonna have its own importance going forward Oh yeah, more and more, and that's again when you when you go back to Nadal and you see that capability of developing his volley game and learning to finish at net, whether it's through swing volleys or primarily swing volleys or drop volleys, uh, angling out into the court. You know, you pull a player off and then you open up the versatility of the hands at net, the ability to improvise in these situations where both players are at net, you know, that's a key factor. And you see that happening usually in big points where both players come forward, you know, from a drop shot. And uh, Fritz is good at that. I think he's, I think that that's going to help him certainly at Wimbledon. 
So I would put him, uh, you know, right in the middle of that pack. But uh, I, let's, I mean, who else you want to talk about? All right, so now let's wrap this up. A couple more questions. Definitely want to talk about Corda. He's the guy who I think has the most promise. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, Shelton and Shelton's young. He's making an immense leap already. But I think Corda, I think the easy offense on both wings and the kick serve, that's still kind of a work in progress is, is improving. I think he's the guy who has the best shot among American men to, to get a major right now. I want your views. To me, he's the strongest. He's, he's the most balanced. Uh, he's the cleanest mover off of both sides. Uh, I think his serve is going to improve significantly as he goes forward and gets more flexibility and more pop. So, and like you said, his kick serve, he's comfortable at net. He just, uh, he just seems to be <coughs> overall a more <coughs> dominant uh, or has the potential to be a, a more dominant player. I think uh, one point I would like to make is <clears throat> I don't think you're, and I don't think you're going to see an American win a slam until you see an American get deep into the French Open. Because that's, uh, and when we talk about balance and fluidity and uh, uh, consistency, mental strength, <clears throat> that's the tournament. That's been the, uh, I was, I went back and watched some of the French from last year of the Americans, you know, before in, in preparation for this. And you just don't see the efficiency of the movement on the clay which is really the ultimate test as far as, you know, really modern tennis grew out of clay court tennis. And it still holds that the best male players of the last generation and a half have come out of clay court. tennis, And it requires a stability and a consistency and a balance that you just don't have to have on to, to break through at the top at the other slams. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't see that yet. At least what I looked at in the, in the clay court stuff from last, uh, last summer. If I, if I were to tell somebody to train, I, I, any of those guys, I'd tell them to go play in red clay for the whole season starting in April. Yeah, I think uh, I had Jose Higueras on the podcast a few years ago, and he said the same thing when he was with the UST Players Development Program. And that time he mentioned TFO and Opelka that uh, yeah. the USCA wanted them to play the Easterel and Munich, the full schedule, unlike just go, you know, like Roddick would go just play Rome and Madrid. They want them to be there for like a couple of months leading up to Roland Garros. And I think, again, don't want to bring Corda back again. I still think like not only the strongest of the names you mentioned, he seems the most likely to succeed on clay. Small sample size, but I think the movement and the smooth offense I mean, these are layman's terms that I'm using. You can probably pronounce these better. But I think he does seem like the guy. Yeah, I don't see him in the French Open, if you ask me, or even Monte Carlo. But I think of all the guys, I still think he can hold his own on clay and look comfortable. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's uh, you're spot on. And I think that even if you're heading deeper into the into the French or getting to the finals of a of a 1,000, that shows to me that you could win a slam but if yeah, if he did if, he did beat Alcaraz in a very windy match last year at Monte Carlo so I'm going to throw that out he needs yep. to he needs to be more relevant this year hopefully his wrist is healed from the injury he suffered uh, in uh, in Melbourne but let's see how he does 
uh, in this year's clay season. You're so right. I think we've, we've talked about it. Clay is the modern language that's spoken. And, you know, you said all the great players, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and even even the Becker Edwards, right? Yeah, th- yeah, those guys Alfred. were playing on clay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at Lendl. Uh, uh, even Edberg grew up playing on clay. Yeah. Becker played on clay. It's just it's just more demanding, and it requires a um, ability to get a solid foundation and to be hitting shots with repeatability. Um, it's it's you know that's modern tennis is clay tennis. Yeah, I'll do a plug in for our old podcast where we I even asked you. I think maybe I was Sagaris. I read somewhere like uh, Europeans and South Americans, they play a lot of soccer. So soccer helps you, I think, in lower back movements, like the rigidity of the erotic backhand. They say that's yeah. connected. You know, if yeah. your lower body is more flexible, you know, then you have backhands like, you know, uh, Nadal, Verdasco, Djokovic, all these good backhands, and you yeah. don't have the limitations. So, yeah, although I think that can, that's more taught than, I mean, to me, that's, you're absolutely right. And the soccer is great, but I think the, the, uh, misconstruing of how to develop power is the big issue. And uh, Americans have always looked at it from the waist up and the Europeans have understood primarily because they're playing on clay that it has to start from the foundation and pass through the hips. Interesting. Uh, all right, so Tim, before I let you go, have you seen any of Brooksby or Shelton or any of the other guys you want to talk about or how much have you yeah, seen of Brooks, those guys? Brooksby, I think is a, uh, you know, he's a very uh, creative player. I was looking uh, at some uh, some old footage of Machir in the sense that uh, they share this kind of unorthodox backhand and um, very resourceful a sense of competing. I don't see him having enough pop to compete at the very, very top. He had, you know, a good Australian, and I think he's always going to be kind of a nuisance um, and certain players are going to hate playing against them, but I think the handful, two dozen players at the very top are going to feel that they can just push them around. And uh, so I don't see him as a serious competitor. I mean, a serious, uh, he's a very serious competitor. I don't see him as a uh, serious threat for the very top of the game. Uh, Shelton, you know, I, there was a couple quotes about myself alongside Shelton coming out of college, you know, I guess it was in the post and the times and stuff. And the first thing that I would say about Shelton, number one is when you come out of college, and uh, you're good as he did. And as I was, you have tremendous confidence and you're really, everything feels fresh and alive and exciting. And uh, you know, you just think you can be a world beater, which he's done. He's done. He did a great job. You know, the, the, the test is going to be, another six or eight months let's see uh how he manages the mental side of spending a year being in a college setting with his dad uh with the support of a team is is uh invaluable as you launch out into the tour but uh, let's see if he can maintain that i'm still not a huge fan of his movement it seems a little cumbersome to me but um and the other thing remember is he's not young i mean he's 22 so it's uh um, the it's not just because he's a fresh face doesn't mean he's young relative to some some of the other guys out there. But uh, if he, I think he's going to have to trim down a little more, get a little more flexible in his hips, and really learn how to 
uh, move in a more measured, balanced way. Uh, if he does that, you know, with the lefty serve, uh, he could be, a, you know, I think he could be a threat to go close to the top 10. But it's He's 20. I just checked. I think I, I was 20. Yeah. So really? a few years. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. So, um, so that's good. I think he's a serious talent, but just, I haven't seen him play enough. Yeah. I'd like to see him on clay, how he moves. I think, uh, my country, you know, I, I really have a hard time judging players movements. So I can yeah. keep that to myself because yep. I think you guys who've played at that level and coached that level, you can look at the explosiveness, the first quick step and all that stuff. So I reserve that for you. Yep. Or guests like you, but I, I'm very curious. So he already has a ranking. He should be able to play a full schedule. Hopefully, he stays healthy. And I, I'm I'm very fascinated what he does uh, on the red clay. Hopefully, he goes, uh, spends two months, and you know gains all the knowledge that's out there. Yep, I totally agree. It's a, it's fun to see. And it's nice to see. That's the other thing that's uh, it's fun to see is a number of guys coming out of U.S. colleges again, and obviously he's the top of that pack. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jim. So this is uh, wonderful. We definitely will plan to bring you back during one of the lead-ups to a major so we can exchange more notes. Listeners love your insights. Uh, don't Great. be a stranger. I know you're busy. So I'll always, you know, uh, oh. re- keep requesting you whenever you can make time. I Great. Think we'll well, it's a real, real thrill to be on the program and uh, it's fun to talk tennis. 